the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you listening on your Indiana Public Broadcasting station this month. And if ever you'd like to get a question on the show, email that to ask at WBAA.org or tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, first of all, a belated happy birthday to you. Thank you. It was uh, a, a monumental one of sorts, was it not? It was, but as a uh, uh, as some engineering students and a little uh, very clever little memento they built for me uh, reminded me. Uh, Ronald Reagan used, he said, "What's the big deal about seventy? It's twenty one Celsius." <laughs> And that's what I'm going with. 21 Celsius. Um, well, I wondered if you've had a chance to reflect on on it. If you were to, as you're going to in a couple of weeks, address the graduating class of 2019, think for a second for us, if you would, what do you know now at 70 years old that you maybe wish you would have known when you were getting out of college as an undergraduate and heading out into the world? What is what is one or two things that, that strike out to you, especially in today's age, that, that you have taken some time to to understand that you might pass on to them a little faster than you knew it? Well, I'm glad you said one or two because we only have a half hour. <laughs> and... Uh... There are a lot of things, I'd say most things, that are, are, have uh, been of any value uh, to me. I did learn afterwards. It's, uh, it, it's, it's very timely. Last night, for instance, I had a, a, a spent an hour plus with a bunch of students. They have a self-organized uh, occasional gathering over at Shreve Hall. And uh, just an open conversation. And I got this basically this question. What I told them was... Uh, I, I started by uh, harking back to the Gallup-Purdue work that we did with the Gallup organization a few years ago, and um, it empirically showed uh, some things that I guess you'd say we either knew or suspected, but proved that um, there are certain ways you ought to go about your college experience that will make it more valuable later on. And when I compare that uh, to anything I, I did in those years, uh, it's clear I, I missed out. Um, I, I did a little, I guess you would say, uh, undergraduate research, which we're trying to make as nearly universal here at Purdue as we can, because we were required to do a thesis where I went. But that's not quite the same as what we want students to do here, work on projects in teams and directly with a maybe a professor. Uh, it... Um, uh, we, we've learned that you ought to have internships. Now, I did that in the summers. I guess you could say I get half credit for that. But I'll tell you what I didn't do, and I've frequently said to students here, don't miss the chance. I did not take the initiative to establish any sort of mentor or uh, direct relationship with, with faculty members. And there were some brilliant ones where I went, and it was a, um, a just a, an o not an oversight, really laziness on my part that I didn't do anything outside of class, really, to learn from them. And uh, so we've, as you know, been a huge emphasis we've put on mentoring here. We encourage the students to seek it out. We encourage, in fact, insist that our faculty make this part of their repertoire. And uh, But it was a, a big uh, missed opportunity for me. 
We are taping this show around and indeed airing it for the first time on the Purdue Day of Giving, which has now gone on for a few years. Uh, and because it's spring, many of the public radio stations around the state who are airing this program will be doing their spring member campaigns as well. I thought I would give you a moment to talk about why why investing in both of those things might be useful. I've confessed often, and maybe on this show, I can't recall, uh, that um, uh, when I first heard years ago about the Day of Giving concept, I thought it was a gimmick and it probably wouldn't work. I was a little worried about trying it. Of course, I was completely wrong. It, it had only been done, to my uh, recollection, on any scale at one school, Columbia. And uh, so our team here really went to schools on that one example. Uh, and in our first year, uh, uh, blew it away in terms of the, the uh, results, which were close to were eight or nine million dollars, I recall. Now we're a multiple of that. We're being sought out by schools all over the place. Our, our folks just went down to our sister land-grant school, North Carolina State, led by a former Purdue provost, um, and showed them how to do it. And they had a very successful they, – they surpassed their expectations in a big way. So I, we feel a little bit proprietary about the whole day of giving thing here. Nobody does it better. I hope again this year we will set records not just for dollars – gathered, but for numbers of people, numbers of first-time donors, um, younger donors, all those things have been accelerated at Purdue by this uh, annual practice. And I'm just uh, so proud of our folks who did it and so glad that that they were right and I was wrong. It's the kind of thing we talk about in public radio, too. It's good to get people started giving to something they believe in. Absolutely. And and that's why we are happy. We're really happy. Of course, we're happy when someone gives a very large, generous gift. But um, yeah, we are very pleased when somebody gives that first gift, even if it's very modest. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I've seen in looking just a little bit at the way philanthropy works is that I think there are some people who worry it might be a zero-sum game, and it turns out the opposite is true. If somebody donates to one thing they believe in, it seems far more likely they will, in fact, donate to multiple things they believe in. Yes? I believe that's what the, all the data uh, tell us. You know, um, Americans take this for granted, but we are, f- by an f- enormous margin, the most philanthropic people on the planet uh, in the Many other countries, most other countries, there's no tax advantage. For instance, it's not even it's not encouraged in the way we do it here. But it's just second nature to Americans to give to uh, their schools, to good causes like public radio, uh, to um, their churches, uh, to uh, humanitarian endeavors. And uh, thank goodness we're that way. And I and I do. And the evidence does say that it, it, the, you know the giver gets a lot out of it. And therefore. It, Maybe it's not surprising that those who uh, do give are um, uh, impelled to do some more. And uh, maybe we'll try and get you one of our special uh, 
limited edition mugs that we're giving out on Purdue Day of Giving with the uh, with the the great picture of the Earth taken from the moon by Purdue ah, astronauts. Good so idea. We'll try to get you one of those. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Email your questions to ask at wbaa.org. Tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. We talked on last month's program about the possibility of a civics literacy test as a Purdue graduation requirement. The faculty have had some time to uh, discuss that in the interim. They seem to be pumping the brakes on that just a little bit. What has been your reaction to their thoughts? I'm fine. You know, there was a, a pause the other day. It was all procedural. and It was about whether what they were voting on was... Um, uh, should there be a special committee or should this be done through the standing committees of the Senate? It needed two-thirds. It almost got two-thirds. So it was, uh, to me, it was uh, um, all about process. Um, uh, there is, I think, um, strong agreement. This is a problem. The data tell us, look look at any survey, doesn't matter who does it or how, of, of all Americans, young Americans, college graduate Americans, uh, there is a serious deficiency of understanding even of the basic facts and history of our system, let alone uh, what it takes to maintain government by consent of the governed. And so um, I, had a, I had a really good session with the new chair just yesterday of the, of the Senate. We talked about you know, ways to keep on working on it, move forward. I'd rather get it right than get it soon. So if it takes another semester or two, but I, re I still feel uh, optimistic that we'll get there. We'll find a way to do this that is non-burdensome to the students, I hope zero burden to the faculty, but that does uh, uh, allow us, allow our, every student who leaves here to uh, have certified that they have at least a basic understanding. And um, uh, that would uh, that will set them apart, sadly, from um, the counterparts they will soon be out there uh, living, working, and competing with. Do you believe this might be in place for the 2020 graduating yeah, class? Yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so, or, or, or at least during next year. Okay. You uh, you showed off some architectural renderings recently of a reimagining of the Purdue Armory. Uh, that's been where ROTC students have trained for a good many years now. It would give the campus another dining spot, open the building up to other uses, too, in the way that you'd presented it. However, there has been some backlash from the school's military community. There was an article in the school paper the other day about it, and they're pointing out you know the history of the building, and they say they don't think they're going to be able to train or recruit students in the same way if those activities are moved out. I wondered what you made of those sentiments, the, the editorial, and the fact that now there's also this 3,600 signature petition that's going around wanting to keep the building the way it is. Yeah, I think it's natural. And let's start with basics. I mean, um, it would have been nice if young man who wrote the article had gone and checked his facts and checked with his superiors first. There's been no decision made. There won't be any decision made that doesn't take into full account the interest of ROTC. You go talk to the Defense Department or the people in the ROTC program specifically, and I visit them when they visit them when they come to campus every year or two. There's not a school in the country more supportive of the ROTC program than this one, and that's not going to change. Um, so we will take their interest into full account, and um, I won't do anything that sets that program back in any material way. But the fact remains that um, uh, that, R that building was built when there were thousands of ROTC students here. It was mandatory for males, unless you were in the band. Until the 60s, right? Yeah, late 60s. And so we have a very, very large structure, 
much larger than the population it was originally built for. That's right in the academic heart of campus. So it wasn't my idea, but it was only natural that as, as people were trying to think about the Purdue campus of tomorrow, that they had a look at that and said, what else, is, there, is there something uh, additional or better we can do? So we'll see. But um, no, the, uh, the reactions, I think, are natural and emotional. I'm pretty emotional about um, our young cadets, too. Ask any, I've been to every commissioning since I've gotten here, the spring, spring commissionings, and um, to me, they are emotional experiences. But, um, uh, you know, I told a young man last night at the, in, in the colloquy we were having, he asked a question about this, and I said, before long, you'll be a lieutenant, and you'll have responsibility for a large number of people, and you'll have to think about the good of everybody, your, your duty will be to think about the entire the, the success of the entire unit, not you know your favorite private or corporal in that unit. And I think he understood that, and that's the way we'll approach this decision. Allow me to play devil's advocate for just a second. You pointed out that the training was mandatory into the late 60s. Not too many years after that, the U.S. abolished the draft that it had had for 30 or 35 years. And, and since the, the early to mid-70s, we've had an all-volunteer military force in this country. Seems likely to stay that way based on the backlash that led to the draft being abolished post-Vietnam and, and, and indeed in the midst of Vietnam. So does a university campus need a building like this that would support an ROTC program? Is there an argument to be made that we should be focusing as much as possible on training scholars rather than soldiers? Sure. I think we do. You know, so many universities kicked ROTC off completely and it's not come back. We are an outlier. I'm told that we are one of a handful at most of universities that has any facility where all three branches of, of ROTC can train together. Uh, you, you, know, you come to our commencements, we make a very big fuss over our ROTC uh, newly commissioned uh, officers. And so uh, completely on board uh, all of that. No, my, my, my only point a minute ago is, yes, we need good facilities and we will have them for them uh, in the armory uh, and or uh, other places maybe too. Um, uh, but again, uh, there was a time when there were thousands of people, and you needed 144,000 square feet. Um, we only we have these days uh, a small fraction of that, very small fraction, and so maybe there are ways to to uh, support them completely, and still have some uh, capacity for classrooms or something else that we need. Speaking of scholarship, uh, you've been appointed to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. What's required of you in that appointment? I'm not certain anything. I have served once on a commission that they asked me to take part in. And I guess there could be, I would certainly feel obliged if they came around again. Uh, they, they study a number of important subjects every year. If they ever ask again, I would certainly now feel um, um, duty-bound Is there to one take you'd, part. you'd particularly like to be involved in? I haven't looked at, uh, I, uh, ha- I haven't looked at, if they've published one, a, an upcoming calendar. But uh, that's the one thing I can think of. They do have some occasional programs, and I suppose a, a good member uh, ought to uh, try to take those in from time to time. I'm, I, I got a the ceremonial phone call this morning from the president, 
um, of the academy. And I, with regret, told him, uh, I don't think I can go to the induction at Cambridge, where uh, ordinarily I would be very honored to go. It it falls exactly on our homecoming weekend, which is the culmination of our 150th Ideas Festival. It's when we're having the astronaut reunion and um, all the events that always go with a, with any homecoming. And so I don't know how I could possibly get to both. Um, so I have that disappointment. That So if they ask for anything else, I'll feel a, a, a special um, a duty to say yes. You have written a couple of interesting editorials recently in the Washington Post that I wanted to ask you some questions about. One talked about, as you put it, studying abroad somewhere in America, and you told the story of a Yale student who had this kind of eye-opening time on a Texas ranch that was very, very different than his upbringing, and in fact found a time to have the, the ranch owner come visit him on campus to sort of see the other half of that. Uh, I wondered if you thought that that we as Americans, especially in this this age of America first in which we are currently living, need to maybe, though, have a little more global perspective. Is is there danger to I think you're right to say, see how other people think about it. But are we becoming too insular to study abroad within the country? Don't we need to get out and have a broader perspective? Sure. That's why we've invested heavily here at Purdue. I, that's one, it was one of the original moves, if you think back to 2013 uh, uh, and, the, and the initial uh, set of strategic uh, uh, projects that we launched here about uh, July or August of my first year. Uh, I was uh, um, I, I noted that I thought far too few of our undergraduates were getting that experience. We've, we've more than doubled it now. And... Um, and I run into students all the time who've had one, or I had dinner last night with a, a young woman who's had two of those experiences, still finishing in four years. So, of course, no, my point there was I had read about this course, and I just think that a place like Yale, they live in a very rarefied air there, and they have behaved in ways there that I think are frankly not becoming of a great university. I'm talking about infringements of free speech, very, I think, narrow and, and possibly... A, um, a, a disdainful attitude about many of their fellow Americans, and they, some of them may have never met them. They come from privileged environments and so forth. That's why I thought it was interesting. I don't know that Purdue – I don't think Purdue needs a, a study in America um, program because our students here, I think, have a very good sense, and they meet on this campus people from every state. And, and, and from various uh, social and economic backgrounds. But I had a, I just thought it was a good idea that a few of these uh, people at that elite school out there uh, might get out and come see, you know, Indiana or places like that and be a little more empathetic to the uh, problems and the, uh, and the outlooks of their fellow Americans. I have sometimes said to people that uh, I wish I could take the entire Indiana legislature on the same train trip that I once took, a, a high-speed train from London to Brussels, took, I think, three hours to get there. Uh, and I think if you if you took them and you put them on the train in London and you waited for them when they got off in downtown Brussels, they would immediately understand why high-speed rail is, is can be doable and is, and is better. And it's, it's that sort of you-don't-know-it-until-you-do-it perspective that I think 
uh, universities especially should be trying to get people to to have. I quite agree. I, I don't know if I'd use high-speed rail in America as my example. You, we don't have the population density you have from London to Brussels in, in most places. That's why they all keep failing, and no matter how much we subsidize them. But, uh, but I quite agree with your, your viewpoint. And I think, by, by the way, um, uh, the, the best legislators that I work, have worked with over time made it their business to do that. There are a number of organizations where they can get together and compare notes and thoughts and, and understand the, how pl- uh, places elsewhere are dealing with problems that, uh, that they may have. It's one of the great advantages of our federal system. It still uh, leaves room. Washington keeps trying to dominate everything, but it still leaves lots of room for localities and states to experiment, to try things that work well for them, and then to compare notes, um, learn from each other's successes and copy them, learn from each other's mistakes and avoid them. Oh, I, I think there are examples, good and bad, of that. For instance, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, I think, is a really great example of people coming from all over the place, all different political stripes yep. and, and geographies for that. However, there are also examples of where you get into very partisan examples where you get this echo chamber and people are drawing up model legislation that gets passed in a whole bunch of different states when maybe it wasn't a great idea in the first place. So I think good and bad of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote another article recently about the the ills and, and some of the misstatements surrounding state lotteries. Uh, of course, you've had experience with this, uh, being a, a governor of this state, which uh, I think, you know, in some regards, Indiana follows this model. It came into being as, hey, look at all this money we're going to generate for education. And then over time, it, it migrates. I'm interested, as a university president now, why take on this issue at this point in your career? I'm not really taking it on. I'm just, I I, I was invited to write these columns. I try to write about things that uh, aren't being uh, beat to death by 12 other columnists every day. And uh, this is this just came to my mind. I I said very explicitly, I know this is um, an isolated viewpoint. To me, paradoxically, of all the ways government takes money away from citizens, this one has uh, the, the least opposition to it, um, I guess because of the entertainment value. So I, uh, you read the piece, you know, I, I didn't imagine that governments would step back away from this, although in an ideal world they might. This is a very regressive tax. It, it, it extracts much more money from low-income people, certainly relative to their income, than it does to people who are better off and can and afford it. It gives terrible odds. Pointed out, even when the mob was running the uh, casinos, uh, they gave better odds, much better odds than the lottery does. And I pointed out my Syrian immigrant grandfather, uh, I later on, much later in life, learned that the pool hall he ran, his real revenue source, was the number, little private numbers racket he had. If he had given odds that bad, I said they'd have run him out of Manesson, Pennsylvania. So um, that's all. It was more whimsical, I guess, than anything else. But it has always uh, troubled me that uh, that at least we, could, if you're going to ha- take money in this way, you ought to give people a little more of a fair shake. You know, despite all the attention, it's very small percentage of the money that Indiana or anywhere raises, um, and they could 
they could give a little better chance to win and, and not miss the money. One of the things that's coming up now in Indiana and other places as a new source of gaming revenue is, of course, now that sports betting has been re-legalized and the Indiana legislature, as we speak, is considering the final version of its bill, which would you know, take a look at not just that, but also the mobile aspect of it. What can you do on your phones? Is there a chance with that to right some of the wrongs that have happened with the lotteries to direct money to education? Uh, We've talked also a lot about teacher pay in this session of the Indiana legislature. Is there a way to take some of the gambling revenue, which it seems like is probably going to be fairly significant? We just keep going up and up and up in terms of, you know, how many people play daily fantasy sports and things like that. Uh, Can we learn from what we've done with the lotteries to direct the way that sports gaming revenue affects Indiana? I don't know that um, I'm, uh, that I uh, see a lot of merit in pledging revenue today. Uh, first of all, as we've seen in the, with the case of the lottery, we saw it in Indiana, it would never happen, really. It was a way to sell the idea originally, attach it to a popular cause. And no state in America spends a higher percentage of its budget on K-12 education than Indiana. It's um, been that way for quite some time. It's a it's the the thing we care about the most. That's just fine, and so they attach they by attaching this uh, new plan back when to that. That's a way to sell it. A lot of states did, and uh, uh, even if you observe it for a while, circumstances change, needs change, and I don't I just don't think it's a good idea to uh, lock yourself in to this dollar goes to this purpose now and forever. Okay. Uh, We mentioned that uh, you obviously are going to be giving a commencement address here in a couple of weeks. And as people graduate in the class of 2019, they need only look up the road at a a Hoosier who has gained a lot of prominence in the last month, even since you and I talked on this show last, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend. Do you think that that his, his story is one that the graduates of this year's class or next year's class when we're about to have an election should emulate. This is a guy who's advanced pretty darn quickly. He would be the first millennial president if he's elected. He would be the youngest person ever to hold the office. But there are people who say maybe he's pushing it a little too fast. Uh, what's your opinion? Uh, free country. Look look at the thundering herd of people who are running, some Congress persons out there that you've, I at least had never even heard of before. Um, anybody can play, um, and um, as long as you're 35, right? <laughs> Born in the United States, yeah, right? You're yes. Right. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, give him credit for the the attempt. He's an ambitious guy. I know him fairly well. Overlapped with him some in my previous job. Got along well. We collaborated on a couple projects, and we've communicated a little bit since. Not not since he jumped in the race, but not that long ago. So I I, I think well of him. Um, you know, it's um, um, I, I don't know what his chances are, but uh, he's he's clever, he's ambitious. He hired a hotshot New York publicist apparently two or three years ago to get his name in front of um, uh, big decision makers, and that seems to have worked out. So who knows um, if it would have if it would seem unlikely that. The mayor of the fourth largest city in the 18th largest state uh, would be considered for the highest office. Well, uh, we've had some surprising uh, 
people win, uh, at least lately. That's true. Uh, you have uh, worked on your time uh, on campus in our last uh, minute or so here to constrict smoking and, 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 and a little bit. And I wanted to ask you your opinion on something that Mitch McConnell just proposed. Uh, he's talking about a national bill that would limit smoking to everybody 21 and older, lowering that uh, or raising that legal age from 18 to 21. Your thoughts on that? Well, I'm just speaking as a as a citizen. I'm I'm open minded to that. I think um, we've got uh, we've made a lot of progress in this country, but there's still too much of this destructive practice going on. We should certainly make it uh, uh, difficult for young people to get started. And uh, so, uh, you know, we we don't take positions here at Purdue unless they're squarely in the realm of higher ed. But uh, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, in previous. Uh, jobs on per, trying to promote wellness and health and so forth. And so uh, we raised the tobacco tax and we doubled it in this state back when. And um, uh, so more uh, more action on that front, I think, uh, got a lot to recommend it. Okay. Well, that's the time we've got for this show and uh, look forward to talking with you next month after we're, we're done with the legislature. I'm sure there will be some topics to uh, address at that point. And again, happy belated birthday to you. Why, thank you, sir. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Remember that at any time, if you'd like to get an emailed question on the show, just send that note to ask at WBAA.org. Listen on your favorite Indiana Public Broadcasting station, and you can find these shows archived at WBAA.org. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.